Welcome to another episode of the Tom Shermer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. Everyone had a wonderful weekend. I'm on the road this week in Hollister, California, working for three days with San Benito High School. And then I'll be off the road as of Wednesday, uh, off the road until January. Also want to apologize for the sound of my voice a little bit. Uh, picked up a little something last week in Minneapolis, two-day training uh, on grading from the inside out. Uh, it was bound to happen. I feel good. Uh, no symptoms other than the fact that my throat's a little sore. Uh, so I'm sure you can hear it. So apologize for that. But uh, we pushed through uh, as we need to get the podcast episode out this week. But a few announcements before we get going uh, here on this episode. There are two episodes left in 2022, including today. So next week, December 12th, will be the last episode for about a month or so. Uh, it's going to give me a chance to kind of catch my breath and a chance for listeners to get caught up in some of the episodes. So we'll be back uh, January 16th. So after next week, the, episode, the new episode in 2023 will come in January 16th. Now, the other announcement is that beginning on January 16th and likely until next fall, I'm going to move to an every other week format. As much as I love doing the weekly episodes, I have a crunch on several writing projects, so I need to create the space to complete those while maintaining the podcast. So we usually go every other week in the summer anyway, so I'm thinking we go every other week from now until September, and then we'll get back to the weekly format uh, in the fall of 2023. I'll keep you posted if anything changes on that. I'll keep you updated on on how things are going. But the uh, the writing projects are catching up to me, and uh, I've got to get uh, got to create some space in order to get those done. Thanks again for tuning in again this week. A big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time. Of course, a big thank you to longtime listeners. I appreciate all of you. This week, my guest is my friend Christine Testorio Mizzoni. Uh, Christine is a former director of curriculum who is now an educational consultant. Christine and I dive into instructional coaching and all of that that entails. And in Assessment Corner, I want to highlight some big ideas from an article I recently wrote about eliminating implicit bias in assessment. And specifically, I want to talk about using cultural archetypes to create a more culturally responsive and culturally expansive approach to assessment. So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. My conversation with Christine Tesario Mazzoni is coming up, but first, don't at me. But I want to open this week by asking you to please take the time to celebrate your wins. Now, last week, of course, I opened by saying that now is the time to get started on anything you want to accomplish personally or professionally. That your journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step and that it's through those single steps that you're going to accomplish your goals. Now, this week, I want to remind you to celebrate each of those single steps and to celebrate the progress you've made. I think it's human nature to keep pushing ahead to reach a goal, and in this modern era of social media, where everyone's accomplishments seem to be so public, it's easy to fall prey or in, you know, to the, the idea of seeing others accomplishing more, at least more from your perspective, and therefore feel as if any small accomplishments you've made are unworthy of any positive affirmation or attention. It seems harder than ever to look inward and ignore the noise of the outside world. And we all know that what we see on social media is like Sports Center, right? It's just the highlights, or is sprinkled with a little hyperbole to make some accomplishments seem better than ever. You're familiar, I'm sure, of Theodore Roosevelt's expression or, or phrase comparison is the thief of joy. Your journey is unique to you, 
Others may not have had to overcome as much or to figure as much out. Others may have had things break their way more quickly. Comparing yourself to others and the superficiality of what they're showing you of their accomplishments is the fastest way to lose perspective on what you've been able to accomplish. And now I say superficial because you only see the surface level. Others' accomplishments may in fact be quite substantial, but you don't know the whole story when you're just looking at an Instagram story or, or any other social media post. So the point is to look inward, celebrate your wins, and know that each of those small wins is going to add up to the big one you're reaching for. I know we have this tendency to look out the windshield, right, so to speak, and fixate on how far we have to go. That's important because we always have to keep an eye on a prize, but it's also important to look in the rearview mirror and remind ourselves how far we've come. Now, I can tell you I'm not always great at taking my own advice as I can be just as guilty of falling prey to, you know, grind culture where we're relentlessly pursuing those, these goals at all costs and and just there's there's this relentless relentlessness to it uh, that can be unforgiving. I can forget sometimes to pause and reflect on how much I've accomplished or how much I've been able to to do throughout my career. I tend to put my head down. I just keep thinking next workshop, next city, next project, next thing, and I forget to press pause as well. Now, in some ways, I suppose that served me well in in accomplishing what I've done. Uh, but but I also recognize that at some point. We also have to enjoy the journey, the process, and not just the outcomes. As we reflect on our journeys, I think what we see is our own growth. We see how our relentlessness in pursuit of a goal shapes our character, it shapes our dispositions. We can see how the journey is impacting us and how we adjust to unexpected obstacles or hurdles that emerge along the way. Plus, we see that we are one, two, three, six, twelve 12 steps closer to achieving our goal. No matter how small you think any of your wins are, celebrate them. I know it's easy to see that others have accomplished more, so you think your wins are insignificant. But remember, they're your wins, so celebrate them proudly. Who cares if others have done more from your perception? Maybe that more was easier for them because of favorable circumstances. When I see people celebrating their wins, especially on social media, it just, I, I find joy in it. Honestly, I never look at their wins and think, what's the big deal? Or that's nothing to celebrate. I just love the fact that they're taking the time to celebrate something small, medium, or large that they've accomplished or that they're proud of. Anyone who dismisses or diminishes your wins or your accomplishments or your small steps forward, they're not worth listening to anyway. Who cares what they think? Remember this when it comes to your celebrations of your accomplishments. Remember this. You'll never be criticized by someone doing more than you. You'll only be criticized by somebody doing less. Now, that quote has been attributed to a number of different people, including actor Denzel Washington, but I really couldn't find a definitive source for that quote. But again, remember, you'll only be criticized by someone doing less. You'll never be criticized by someone doing more than you. If someone is dismissive of your small wins that you're celebrating, then you know everything you need to know about where they're coming from. It's those doing less than you who want to pull you down to their level to make themselves feel better about their lack of drive or their lack of accomplishments or their own insecurities. Do you.
as the expression goes. Be proud of how far you've come and don't let anyone deter you from celebrating any incremental steps to achieving your ultimate outcome. Don't let anybody get in the way of that. Be proud of what you've done and celebrate those wins as you keep making those incremental steps to achieving your ultimate goal. Joining me this week for the interview is my friend, Christine Tesario Mazzoni. Christine is an education consultant who supports schools as they move from theory to practice in the areas of instructional leadership, instructional coaching, and curriculum design. Additionally, Christine works with aspiring school leaders as an adjunct professor for the College of New Jersey and for the International School Counselors Association as their professional learning consultant. Christine has served both as a classroom teacher and also a school leader for nearly two decades, both in U.S. public schools and private international schools. Most recently, Christine served as the director of learning at Benjamin Franklin International School in Barcelona, Spain. And prior to that, Christine was the curriculum and professional learning coordinator at the International School of Beijing in China. And that is where I met Christine and her now husband, Casey, back in 2016 for two weeks during my stint in Beijing. Uh, Casey and Christine and I commuted every morning to and from, not from school, to school. Uh, we took the bus home from from the school, but we commuted every morning uh, and and enjoyed our time to get to know each other and our conversations and all of that. So we are, we have been connected online, of course, but uh, it has been a long time since I've had a conversation with Christine. So not only is this an interview, this is a chance to catch up with a friend. So Christine, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much, Tom. I'm so happy to be here. And yeah, I, I recall those. We had some nice dinners out too. We did too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there were some nice dinners out and uh, touring around. And I remember just, I remember the smog. I remember the <laughs> the, uh, the the cold. It snowed, I think, in the second week I was there. But the one day I had to sightsee, which was the wall, the Forbidden City, Tiananmen Square, all that pure sunshine. The smog was gone. It was a beautiful day. Uh, and it was great. A lot has changed. Uh, you and Casey are now married. You have two children. Uh, so a lot has changed in the last six years uh, since we were uh, together in Beijing. So um, really excited to have you here. Uh, great to reconnect with you. Um, and of course, you know, I've been following you online and following your career and excited uh, about your new venture, which we're going to talk about momentarily. But before we dig into all of that, Christine, let's let's go back to the beginning. And I just want to ask you, what or who inspired you to get into education? Why, why teaching? Why, why, did, why was this the career choice? Yeah, such a great question. And I'm going to go really far back, actually, with how I answer this. So I'm going to take you back to my first international trip, which was as a child, my father planned a trip for our family to go to Italy, where we would be visiting our ancestral home. So, you know, this house that had been in our family for generations and generations. And I brought a little travel journal with me and I wrote something in it that would then become my mantra really for life, which is pretty wise for a little kid, I think, to be able to, um, to journal this at that age. And I wrote, I feel so alive. I feel so alive. And that was the impression I had about, you know, stepping off the plane and traveling for the first time, really, you know, aside from Disney World and, and those other amazing privileges that we had as a child going on family vacations. But this was the first time that I feel, I felt like my senses were heightened. I was seeing things that I had never seen before. 
I was smelling flowers that I didn't realize could smell like such sweet perfume. Um, I was hearing sounds, you know, linguistically, of course, the language was so fascinating to me, but then I was hearing the fishermen yelling out to the townspeople about what he caught that day and just things that I had never experienced before. And the way that I translated that into my journal was, I feel so alive. Hmm. And so I, I say this because I think that was the first time that I realized that I would spend my life pursuing that feeling that I wanted to find a way to have that feeling more than on a family vacation once a year. And so it's not probably surprising then that I went in the direction of becoming a Spanish teacher because I thought that that could be a way that I bring culture to the young children that I was responsible for um, every day. And it was a way for me to feel that sense of being alert and alive and all my senses kind of coming out um, in the classroom. So how can I create that immersive experience for my, my students who may not have the opportunity to travel just yet, but I wanted to spark that in them, that curiosity and that joy for other cultures and other places and the feelings that they might have by traveling. So that's really where it came from when I say that I went in the direction of becoming a, a, a teacher, it was really a Spanish teacher specifically um, to, to bring language and culture to young people. And I did that for a number of years in New Jersey, public school in New Jersey. And I loved it, Tom, like I loved being a teacher. I loved it so much. And I also was really curious about leadership. So I was paying attention to what our school leaders were doing. I was paying attention to um, what my amazing principal at the time, Dr. Jean Solomon, she was just such a role model for me. But I was paying very close attention to what she was doing and why she was doing it and how she was making decisions. And I was intrigued. And I also recognized that I was in a small little district in New Jersey. And so I wasn't so sure there would be a place for me to grow. And that's where it started. For me, I started to think about well, what might come next in my career? You know, how do I feel that curiosity that I have about the world and about travel, I want to feel alive more often than once a year. And I want to explore this leadership side of education as well. And so um, I took a, a course in educational leadership, which led to a, a master's in educational leadership. And it was in my last course for that degree that five words changed the direction of my life. So we were going around the table. It was late August, about to start the school year in September and going around the table, introducing ourselves to our new classmates. And we were sharing about our summers. And we stop at this man who shares about his summer. And he says that he had just returned from the island of Mallorca where he was working on his principal certificate. So my first opportunity to talk to him I said the five words that changed the course of my life, which were, can I pick your brain? <laughs> and I'm so glad that I did because first of all, that man became my husband. Oh, okay. And, and secondly, it was through that course in Mallorca that I then went on to, to pursue my principal certificate with him in the subsequent summers after that. Um, that I was, I was exposed to the world of international schools because we were in these courses with people that were also pursuing their degrees, their principal certificates, but they were coming from schools all around the world. 
I mean, places that I needed to pull out a map to, to see where they were really coming from. <laughs> and it was that, like connecting of the dots for me of maybe it is possible to have it all. Maybe you don't have to wait until your summer vacation to feel alive. Maybe you can have the career in a really, you know, incredible place in this world. And, and you can have a family too while doing that. And it was the first time that I realized that there were other possibilities for me. Um, and, and, and that's really where it started. So then we found ourselves, we were only dating at the time, but we found ourselves at a job fair the following winter. And he was offered a, a great opportunity where we met in, in Beijing, I speak. We spent four really fulfilling years there. I was first the assessment coordinator, mm -hmm. and then I moved into a uh, curriculum and professional learning role. And, and then from there, yeah, here in Barcelona. So I've, I spent the past five years as the director of learning at Benjamin Franklin International School. And now this is my first year completely on my own as a consultant, you know, not, not with that safety net of being in a school. Right. And it's, it's been really really thrilling and exciting. And I have to say on a daily basis, I feel really alive. That is incredible that uh, two things that come to mind um, that at such a young age that you wrote, I feel so alive is, is incredibly insightful for, for being that young. And uh, the second thing, um, can I pick your brain? It's the first time I've heard that used as a pickup line. So uh, we'll have to, uh, those of you who are single out there, remember that, write that down. Can I pick your brain? Uh, Maybe the way to, uh, <laughs> to way to find your future spouse. Um, well played, well played, Christine. Well, well played. Um, well done. Okay. So, uh, I want to focus today. Now we know that you you work more than just in the area of instructional coaching, but I want to direct our conversation today about instructional coaching and you know kind of um, get your insights as to you know your thoughts about what instructional coaching is all about. So let's let's talk about that and start maybe with just the bigger picture. You know, just like in sports or dance or any other activity, there are you know many ways to coach. There's a lot of different ways to coach. So I'm wondering from your perspective. You know, what do you think, what do you think the most effective instructional coaches do? What are some of those key things that in great instructional coaches do? Yeah. So great coaches help us find the answers. You know, it's, it's through an inquiry process. It, they don't have all the answers for us, which was a misconception that I think I had. I was like, wow, I think coaches need to know everything about everything and every subject right. matter. And there feels like a lot of pressure um, content-wise when you're an instructional coach. Mm -hmm. um, but that's not the case. Really, really effective coaches are incredibly masterful when it comes to the way that they ask questions. You know, deep, reflective questions that allow us to find the answers on our own. And, and with that, they I think they walk that line. You know, they toggle between um, consulting and coaching. So there is a time and a place for them to say, okay, let me give you a suggestion. Let me model something for you. And, and there is a time and a place for that. And really great coaches toggle seamlessly between the two. Uh, and I would also say that their language is really intentional. Mm -hmm. So yes, reflective questioning, um, paraphrasing. And then I would say that it's also not in just what they say, but how they say it. So really incredible coaches are both credible and approachable. Yeah. 
It, you know, you bring up such a great point about um, not so much about the content, because I think, you know, I think there's that misunderstanding that in order to be an instructional coach, you have to be a content expert and you don't. You have to be an instructional expert. You have to know good teaching, right? Just like in the work that I do with assessment, um, I don't have to know. I, I can coach somebody on assessment without being a high school physics teacher or a high school chemistry teacher or calculus or anything like that, because the concepts are universal and ubiquitous. And I think that the same thing for instructional coaches to understand instruction, good teaching, how to set up a lesson, all of that, I think are really important, uh, important aspects of that for sure. And I think sometimes people get intimidated by the job. Would you agree that some people are intimidated by the job by thinking that way that they have to be a content expert? Yeah. And I think it goes two ways. You know, there's, there's this feeling sometimes coaches will say, you know, I avoid working with these teachers because I don't feel confident in that subject area. Mm -hmm. um, and then those teachers avoid working with those coaches sometimes because they feel like they, what could you possibly teach me about my content area? But that's not what it is. That's a giant misconception about right. the role of a coach. So I think also really effective coaches view their roles as partners in an inquiry process. They're not mm -hmm. experts and they're not judgmental. Uh, they really are partners in an inquiry. Right, right. Co uh, co coaches don't play in the game. Coaches coach and uh, and players play. So I think that that model. I think the word coach is very applicable in that role. What do you think? What do you think the toughest part is about being an instructional coach? And 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 if whatever you identify, um, how do you deal with that aspect of the job? Yeah. So there, it's a tough job. It's a really yeah. tough job. Um, if I had to say one of the toughest parts of that job is sometimes where they sit on the table of org, if you will, you know, so they're not quite, they're not really teachers oftentimes, sometimes they're part-time teaching and that's a whole other challenge that we have to, you know, yeah. think about yeah. and for, but oftentimes they're not teachers and then they're also not senior leaders, you know, they're not on that senior leadership team. So they're somewhere in between and that ambiguity, I think, creates um, confusion around the role and a lack of boundaries sometimes. And then it also, I think, can lead to a feeling of isolation. Mm -hmm. So who's coaching the coaches? Where is the true leadership over coaching in a school? You know, who, where do they sit and, and who do they work and collaborate with regularly? So I think if that's the issue, um, and this is some of the work that I'm doing, I, I get so much joy out of working one-on-one -on -one with coaches virtually right now who maybe they don't have a team, maybe they don't have a direct report, you know, they don't, they don't work with the director of learning, they don't work with the principal very closely. There's a role in a school and they have they fill that role, but they're not quite sure why or what they're supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. And so the school will say, Christine, can you work with that coach one-on-one? -on -one? Or that coach will say, I, I really need this support. Will you work with me one-on-one? -on -one? And so you can get that, I think, externally. But ideally, that, that support, that network would come from within. And sometimes we have to create that for ourselves. So just a quick, simple tip that I would say for coaches who feel isolated, um, look within for your people and then find a common space. You know, at first, when I first started at my, my most recent school and I was working with the coaches, we didn't have a common shared space. And so I had to be really creative about that and renting hotel spaces for us to use the meeting rooms to have our retreats and mm -hmm. um, finding space in the library that we could take for ourselves for a few hours for a meeting. 
like find common space and put it on your calendar to meet regularly, even if nobody's calling those meetings or facilitating those meetings for you, because it's within that shared space and shared time that you find your support and that you share ideas and that you can do that planning together. Yeah, I was going to ask you, um, in fact, I was planning on asking you a little later on, but let's jump to it now. Um, so I think I heard you say, I was going to ask you whether or not coaches need coaches, like do do instructional coaches need that support and, and how do they manufacture that or create that for themselves, especially if they don't have a large faculty or they don't have that external source like yourself. So it sounds like that's a really important part of the job is to to have that structure in place. Is that is that fair? Structure matters. Yeah. Structure matters. And I have seen I have seen it a lot of different ways in schools. So I have seen structure lists. <laughs> I yeah. have seen structure where the coaches are sort of working with or for the divisional principal. Mm-hmm. I have seen it work best. Maybe I'm biased, but I've seen it work best when it's like a director of learning kind of role that has true leadership for the vision and the structures and the systems for coaching. Um, But structure absolutely matters and who's coaching the coaches. So ideally, again, that's job embedded. That's happening internally in-house. So when I was the director of learning, we created uh, our teaching and learning team. And we were in a shared space, which has become the name of my company, actually, Collaboratory, which Mm -hmm. I have to credit Casey for because I I was talking to him one night about some, some challenges and some visions that I had for the work that I was doing. And I said, I just, I just am imagining this, this space where teachers can come and collaborate, but then they're also trying new strategies and they're failing forward and they're designing and they're planning. And he's like, so like a collaboratory. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. (laughs) we, We decided to name, we had a new building built and my head of school, Colin, hello, Colin, um, had showed me the blueprints of our new building. And he said, I have something to show you. And it was this beautiful purpose-built space called the collaboratory. Wow. <laughs> Vision to reality. But, but what's so amazing about that space, no matter what you call it, is um, we, didn't, we didn't have desks. And I, it wasn't like I was in some you know, special office with like a plaque with my name there. It, it, that, none of that mattered. We were all in this shared space working at tables together and inviting people in to make use of our resources, to have that spirit of inquiry and collaboration all together. Um, and we had regular meetings, formal meetings, but I have to say that it was in those in-between times when someone would be working on a plan or an agenda or a professional learning session they were designing. And they'd say, anybody have an inclusion activity that would go well when I'm trying to do this? Oh yeah, yeah. I tried this last week. You try it too. It'll be great. You know, so where the real growth and coaching for the coaches happened. And then because it was built into my role, I was able to really make sure that I was supporting them in terms of skill building with what they needed, personalized skill building. So I was picking up, of course, in the wake of the pandemic, I was picking up on this theme of resilience. And so I went to my Elena Aguilar book onward and I'm like, okay, we got to workshop some stuff out of this book on resilience. With this team because That's what they needed. That's what that coaching team needed. So they could show up and that work could show up with the work they do with teachers and kids. So it's all about being responsive. It's all about providing that support for our coaches who are giving so much of themselves and oftentimes pouring from, you know, an empty cup. 
Yeah, it's it can be a, a definitely be a challenging job for sure, and needing that support to have that support around you is is really critical. Um, you know, the other thing I think about with coaching is coaching someone who is reluctant to be coached, or or someone who says they're open to coaching, but then every time you make a suggestion, they are pushing back, disagreeing, arguing. Like, how do you, what's the best way to approach that? If you're an instructional coach, you're trying to offer suggestions and they're reluctant or they keep, they say they're open, but they, their, their behaviors says they're not, what's the best way to handle that? Right. So again, if I, I think if I had a, a one word summary for a lot of these questions, it's like intentionality, you know, so we can plan, we can plan for some of that. I think we can plan for a lot of that. So I look at it as two tracks, preventative and then responsive. So preventative would be the kind of model we have for coaching. So is our model to fix teachers? Because if it is, I predict we're going to have some reluctant coaches. Right. Is our model student-centered? Because if it is, I predict that our coaches are going to want in. They're going to want a partner in, in looking for solutions that are going to move their students forward. Um, is there clarity on the role that's communicated to everybody, not just the coaches, because sometimes we, we do really great vision work and we even create manifestos and say, this is, I'm a coach at this school. This is what I show up to do every day. And I'm clear on that, but have I made that clear to everyone else? You know, so being clear about the role, um, is a preventative measure. I think here's something that I think is really controversial and I, I think I know where I stand on it now, although it's probably just a result of me failing forward on this. Um, <laughs> is the model invitational or is it mandatory? Mm. So, okay, so when we first started, it was purely in, when I stepped into kind of taking on the coaches because we had we had um, we had people in those positions, but it was not a clearly defined role at the time. So that was for me to repurpose them and really redefine what we meant and to adopt a model, all of that. But before that, there were coaches and it was purely invitational. And because of that, they were really an underutilized resource. Um, and that perpetuated like the misconceptions about what they were there for. So then when we kind of did a a restart on coaching, I thought, okay, coaching is for everyone in the elementary school. And so we're going to support with that. We're going to create a a coaching cycle schedule, a calendar, and each team, each grade level is going to have a six to eight week cycle, and it's going to be calendared in. And we're going to send calendar invites to let them know when these cycles begin and end. (laughs) Don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) I did not like that. Yeah, not a good idea. <laughs> no. Well, I think, you know, where I land is is somewhere in between. We have to provide the structure and then lots of freedom and choice in, in how that how that works. So that's a preventative mm-hmm. measure. Yeah. Culture, working on culture. Do we have a school-wide culture that goes beyond the work that the coaches are doing? This is something that everyone's working on, but a culture for growth, mm-hmm. a culture for, for learning, a culture for collaboration, and being, again, intentional about how we build that culture. Um, and another preventative measure is simple, but powerful, uh, having coaching cycle share outs. So in between those six to eight week cycles, what we would do is bring everybody together in a faculty meeting and we would have those teachers share out on how it went. And the main thing that they would say is, 
this was the student-centered goal that we were working on together with the coach. This is what the data showed before we started coaching. Here are some strategies we tried. And then now look where our students are. Here's the data. Mm-hmm. Now that I, I say is a preventative measure for that reluctance and that resistance to coaching. Because I think when people see that and the proof is in the pudding and they see the student you know, improvement or growth, they get ideas for how that could look in their classroom. So sometimes people don't want to opt into coaching because they just really don't know what it could look like for them. They're not right. sure what it, how, how it could go. So when they have a clear example and it's a positive one, I feel like that's preventing some of that reluctance. Yeah, a little bit of word of mouth in a way, you know, looking at the data, showing student growth and showing how it's impacting students. I can see the challenge because if you make coaching invitational, and then some people are getting coaching. There can be this perception: oh, oh, you need coaching. Um, you know, you're you're less than as a teacher. And if you make it mandatory, then you're forcing a structure upon people who might be reluctant for that. And putting calendar invites and telling them when the cycle is going to happen that can be problematic too. Uh, so you can see that it's kind of a challenge uh, in in both ways. So I, I like the idea of, of putting it student centered and, and making it data driven and, and making it uh, a little less because we, we're all very good at saying no one has all the answers. I don't have all the answers. Um, collectively, we we do, and yet when push comes to shove, sometimes we're not open to hearing others' perspectives. I'm going to put you on the spot here a little bit, Christine. Can you tell me about a story, maybe a quick story about just a real breakthrough you had? You were coaching somebody who was somewhat reluctant, and and uh, and you had a breakthrough with him with them. Um, what what comes to mind when you think of that? What's one of the best breakthroughs or or uh, stories of coaching? I want you to brag a little bit about uh, how you, yeah, give you a chance. Because I know you won't, so I'm going to give you a chance to brag a little bit about a breakthrough you had with a teacher. Okay, so I would say the greatest sort of sense of success or joy that I've had in terms of breakthrough in this way is through my coaches' breakthroughs. So uh, that coach the coach idea, right? So I was really supporting our, our team of three coaches in our school. We had a literacy coach, a tech coach, and a math coach. And so just like they would be creating student-centered goals with their team of teachers, I was creating teacher-centered goals with the coaches, right? So right. You know, what is it that we're, we're trying to do? So it was sort of like, um, yes, you're working on these student-centered goals, but we also want to see practice, you know, we, we want to move practice as well. And we want to apply what they're learning, knowledge and skills. We want to apply that and transfer that. So when the coach steps away, those practices continue. Um, and so I feel like my, my work was only as successful leading this team as the work that they were doing and the breakthroughs they were having. And so there was one teacher who, you know, and, and we tried to also be, again, intentional about weaving interview questions into our interview process so that we could find out in the recruiting process how open to coaching people might be. And it, and it wasn't just, you know, are you open to coaching? We were trying to find ways to really get at it and hear examples of when somebody has, has had, you know, a positive or negative experience with coaching mm-hmm. because we were trying to build a culture for it. So we had interviewed somebody and that person seemed really keen, you know, had, had lots of examples of coaching work that they loved to do. And then when it came down to it, our coach had a really hard time even meeting with that person. That person just made it every excuse not to meet. 
So my job became to coach the coach in how to handle that, right? And so it was things like, okay, we have to put your relationship first. Let's set aside the student-centered goals. Let's see how present you can be in that hallway where that teacher teaches. How helpful can you be to that person? They don't want you coming in to coach. Okay. Can you provide a resource that maybe they don't have time to look for on their own? So let's be present. Let's be um, helpful. And let's start to build that relationship. And then it was, you know, time, investing a lot of time, being consistent, being trustworthy also. So if you're going to do something for that person, we know that you're going to lose them real quick if you don't follow through. So it was a lot of me coaching the coach on these little strategies for them to build that relationship. And then it, it became, okay, we think we have a relationship established. Might we ask if they'd be open to a coaching, you know, a coaching cycle now? And still the, the answer was, no, I'm not ready yet. You know, I, I have too much going on. And we, we were trying to say is, but this is the work. You're already doing the work. So having a partner and it just facilitates that, you know, so there was still this disconnect. And, and so what I tried to do with the coach then was figure out what's really at the heart of that resistance. Is it fear? You know, is it fear-based that they're not going to have the skills and that they're going to be judged? Have they had a bad experience with coaching in the past and they're worried about the trust? You know, are you going to run and tell the principal that they messed up? So it's all of these things that we were working on while that teacher really had no idea that we were working on that as a goal. And eventually, you know, it was a success story because that, that person went on to, uh, to opening up their classroom and their students for a coaching cycle. And they got to see the growth of their students. And then in that coaching cycle share out, it was that person who publicly thanked our coach. And our coach was like, gosh, I did not even know that you liked me. You know, like, <laughs> there you are, praising me and thanking me for the work yeah. that we do. So I would say that my breakthroughs are through the breakthroughs of the coaches. Interesting. So listeners, you can hear how skillful Christine is at deflecting the question away from her and deferring to the other coaches. I was well, well done there. It, it is interesting also to think about, I think a lot of people are drawn to teaching a couple of theories, and I don't think this is a, everyone, but I do think some people are drawn to teaching because of the the privacy of the job. Like people don't like to feel sort of they like the privacy of, and not not in a diabolical or or um, you know nefarious way. Just they just they just like the privacy of the job, and so opening up their classroom can kind of they can feel exposed a little bit. And and the second part is the vulnerability, and I think that they kind of go hand in hand, which is you know, to have someone in my classroom coaching me is to expose the fact that I might feel that I am less than as a teacher. And I think if we can get past that and build that relationship, I thought that was very wise to focus on the relationship and build that level of trust. And then um, you can see that you can have that that tipping point for sure. Mm -hmm. um, last question as we finish up here, uh, before we get to the other questions I always finish with, but last question about coaching. I know that you are an advocate for, I think maybe you talked a little bit about this, but let's just synthesize this about having a vision and a plan for coaching and what is your plan and what is your vision, whether you're an individual coach or whether that's a plan for a school or a district or however they might go. And, and if, if, if that is true, if we need to have a plan or a vision, what do you think the characteristics of the most effective visions and plans are for, for instructional coaching in schools? Yeah, it's, it's so important to plan for this. So vision, absolutely. You know, it, it all starts with vision and, and that's not, opinion-based. You know, it has to be grounded in 
something. So when I say that it's an inquiry process, when I say coaching is an inquiry process, so too should, should be our process for starting any new program or bringing anything new in. Um, so we're, we're looking at it really almost like an action research project. What happens when we do this? What do we notice about student impact? Because that's the big thing. You know, I, I think we spend, we, we spend so much time, so much money in schools, so many of our resources on professional learning. And I don't know if we can say that there's always a transfer to practice. And then if there is a transfer to practice, is it really impacting and moving learning? So, you know, coaching, I think is that it, it is that, um, that in between it's that thing that brings us from knowledge and skills and a great, a great professional learning experience to applying it and seeing an impact. So then that means that we have to have a vision that's rooted in something. And one of those, one of the ways to do that, I would say is like a book study. So we did some book studies around Diane Sweeney, student centered uh, coaching. We did around, you know, Elena Aguilar and Steve Barkley, like just take the great from the greats and do some studying together. Do your own professional learning around that and think about who should be involved in that visioning process. Because if it's just the coaches, maybe that's not the best approach. You know, maybe it should involve principals. It should involve teachers. Think about who should be involved in that visioning process. And ideally that would happen before you launch. Oftentimes we don't have that luxury. We walk, we step into a school, coaching's already established. It's already going. We have people with that job title and, and we have to go backward. We have to, you know, re kind of reimagine what that vision now could look like in light of new learning. So I would say spend a lot of time and invest in that vision and engage people in the, in the vision work. And then of course, build skills and continue to build skills, not just in the coaches, because yes, they need to continuously be working on their craft, but also building skills in our principals and our, our instructional leaders and how to partner with the coach. That's when we see the biggest impact, when there's a real partnership between coach and principal. Um, and also building skills in our in our teachers as well. So it's like vision, skills, motivation is another thing we need to plan for in the plan. We need to really think about what motivates teachers to be part of coaching. Not I have to do this, but how do we shift that to I get to be part of coaching? Right, so it's a shift, right. it's a shift in mindset that we are responsible for creating by having really great coaching experiences with people. Um, so it's the motivation and then resources, of course. And I would say a measurement, a way to figure out if it's working and to keep tracking that and yeah, celebrating, yeah. celebrating that I, progress. I think that that celebration part, the tracking part, very important there for sure. And I, I could see the wisdom in having everyone involved in shaping the vision for what we want out of coaching, which I would imagine would make teachers more receptive since they know what to expect. They know what the vision is. And in fact, they played a role in creating the vision for what the coaching model uh, should look like. So you're right. Sometimes we step into it and maybe we have to reset the vision as a school. Maybe our coaching model has got a way on us and we've got to bring it back and sort of recalibrate and mm -hmm. figure out what that vision might be. But I, I can see the the importance of, of having clarity around what the process is, what the outcomes are, how to measure success, whatever that measurement is, but some sort of metric that says we are having success. Um, often it would be around student 
I think you can have student metrics for sure about student achievement and how well they're achieving, but also also metrics for teachers in terms of of, of shifting practices and all that. So, um, yeah, we you know there there are probably many models out there, but sometimes we have to shape that model for what suits our culture and our norms for sure. So, two questions left, Christine. As we finish up, uh, these are questions, of course, you know, as a listener to the podcast, you know, I ask two questions at the end of every interview, and uh, you are no exception. So here is the first one. And again, you can take this in any direction you want to. But the question is, of course, educationally speaking, what keeps you up at night? Okay, so I've thought about this. And <laughs> so in addition to the work I'm doing um, through collaborative consulting, I'm also working for the International School Counselor Association, which has really opened my eyes to just how serious an issue it is right now that you know, people are really struggling, Uh, not just in schools, but people are really struggling. And so the work that they're doing, that ISCA is doing, that I'm doing alongside ISCA is we're working toward that. We're working on like, what is, how does that look in a school? Really? How does that look uh, curriculum wise? How does that look, you know, building that into our everyday practices? But so that's a worry I have, of course, is that people are not well, people are not socially, emotionally well right now. And I also would say that's not keeping me up. And the reason why I would say that's not keeping me up is it's a worry I have, but the thing that keeps me up is I can't stop imagining what we should be doing about it. That's what's keeping me up. Right. So it's like shifting from thinking about what the problem is and, and designing for a better, a better solution, a better possibility. Um, maybe the question is more what gets you up in the morning. Yeah, right? fair because enough. Uh, I'm not, I'm not losing sleep about the problem. I'm losing sleep about what I'm going to do about the problem. Okay. Yeah. Well, you've, you just rephrased my question. That's a, that's a good, what gets you up in the morning? I like that a little more optimistic uh, perspective on it. Well, well done. I like that. may have to start using that one. What gets you up in the morning? Okay. Well, you're helping. We're we're doing an interview and uh, you're reshaping the podcast. Uh, A lot of stuff happening here, Christine. <laughs> That's really good. That's really good. Any thoughts though on what what the solution might be? And you're talking adults, right? You're talking teachers and exactly. I mean kids too, but you're talking about about the adults in the system, the people are struggling. Yeah, yeah people are really struggling. And um what do you so, think they need? Like what do they need? What do you think? So one thing that is keeping me up is this plan that I have for bringing people together. So what I mean by that is um, let's take the principles that I'm working with, right? They're working, they're at different schools um, around the world and they're having different struggles. Uh, so I would, I know you recently read uh, Adam Grant's Think yeah. Again. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I also just read it finally. And that had me thinking about okay, Christine, you need to get on this. Let's create a challenge network for those principles. You know, so, so they're taking this course with me for toward their degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but they're all just doing this like asynchronous coursework and submitting assignments and journals and things on their leadership journey. But like, let me bring them together and create a challenge network so that we can help each other and we can be each other's critical friends that's something I can offer, you know, so that's keeping me up at night as I'm planning for that. And I wake up the next morning thinking about let's get on this. Um, so I think, yeah, it's about, it's about bringing people together to, I don't know, problem practice. You could call it things like that are really practical strategies that can help people now. 
-hmm. And then I think it's about building resilience into our processes as well. So every meeting we have, every meeting we have in a school is an opportunity to provide inclusion, to provide a sense of belonging, to build each other up, to celebrate, to really check in with people and let them know that what you're feeling is okay and it matters and I'm listening and I'm going to follow up with you on that. Right. You know, so every meeting we have, no matter what the topic is, is an opportunity to do that for each other. And I think yeah. we could build that into our processes. Yeah, I think that's, um, yeah, again, people are not, um, their needs are individualized and personalized, but I like the idea of checking in and, and the networking and, and keeping connected. That's that connection. You know, I think people struggle a lot when they feel isolated and they feel like they don't have that connection or that support around them. So um, certainly important to to create that for them. Okay, last question. Um, of course, as an amateur foodie, um, this is going to be tough for you because I've been to Barcelona and it is a spectacular city and I've had many experiences that were so good. But um, so maybe I'll give you two in this instance. Um, but the question, of course, is, uh, you know, it's one thing to visit Barcelona. It's another thing to live there. Um, so the question, of course, where's the best place to eat in Barcelona? And if you need to go with two or more, that's fine, because I know there's probably many. But uh, tell us, Christine, in Barcelona, best place to eat. Where's your favorite okay. place? So been living here. This is my sixth year living here. Yeah. And so I, if anybody wants my actual list, I have, a, I have a little note in my cell phone, Tom, I can send you, I can copy and paste that to you in an email of my suggestions. <laughs> One of those that always tops that list for me when visitors come, I'm like, you if you like seafood, you have to go here. And it's a, it's a chiringuito, which is these little, um, little huts that are on the beach. But this has been turned into more of a restaurant, but it still maintained the name of Chiringuito and the, the name of it is Escriba. And I'll, I'll write that down for you, but um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, if you want seafood, it's just the whole vibe of the place. You know, the, the beach is right there. It's a busy bustling place. There's always a long line. And then you go with friends and with family and you get paella that's just in these big, large dishes like you see on postcards and things. Mm -hmm. non-travel but you you really experience that and everybody just digs in and uh shares that that paella together so that's where i recommend for people when they're wanting that okay and then in our little neighborhood here that we live in there's just a lot of little mom and pop places uh that offer a menu del dia mm. which usually for around you know 10 or 11 euros you get uh, a first a second a dessert um course for wow. so cheap and just yeah. lots of delicious options. And it's made right there in house. And so I have a lot of those little local spots too that I can recommend. Yeah, my um, my buddy Carlos, who's uh, from Barcelona, makes an incredible paella. And uh, so I know I know he's uh, it's authentic and it's delicious. And uh, I can imagine uh, what it's like uh, over there in, in, in Spain for sure. Um, now, before we finish up, Christine, I wanna give you a chance to, cause I know you won't do this. So I want to give you a chance, a little, little commercial here, a little free plug, a shameless plug for collaboratory consulting. You've got the, uh, the website and all of that. We talked about instructional coaching, but you're doing more than instructional coaching. So take, take some time here. Tell listeners a little bit about your work, the expansive nature of your work, and, and, and maybe where they can get a hold of you or how they can connect with you. Great. Thank you, Tom. I so appreciate that. Um, yeah, so instructional coaching became a passion area for me, I would say, and, and through the work that I did to kind of reimagine, restructure what that would look like, and then support our amazing coaches in my last school, 
I realized that there was something there, that there was something that schools were maybe missing, that they didn't have the time or the people to really take leadership of their coaching team, or maybe they wanted to have coaching and coaches, but they just needed support and how to get there. So some of the work that I'm doing right now is working one-on-one with coaches. Again, like I said before, if, if they are working in isolation, I can, I can be that support. We're doing things like philosophy work, vision work, um, but even down to creating language maps. So if you're new to coaching, or even if you're not new to coaching, I still use, when I'm doing a cognitive coaching conversation, I still use my placemat to support me in the different parts of that conversation. So we create placemats of language that feels right for them that would help guide them through a coaching conversation. Um, So things that are very practical that they'll be able to create, we're we're doing work like that one-on-one and also with small coaching teams. And then I would say that there's also a lot around leadership and that can either be, I'm working with some organizations even, not not schools, but organizations who um, are needing support with their strategic planning process or running leadership retreats Uh, For the International School Counselor Association, I'll be leading their pre-conference, which is a, it'll be in Bangkok in March for any counselors listening. Um, And so that will be a leadership for counselors skill building day, where we really just practice and give each other feedback on leadership skills that we'll be building together that day. And then it's a lot of also systems work. So taking a school, um, a head of school or a director of learning might say, this is the vision that we have. We're not really sure how to get there. So then I support in in helping them make the systems um, for that to happen. And then I really love anything in terms of middle level leadership as well. So teacher leaders, um, people that are sort of in that traditional department head kind of role and a school is thinking, okay, we don't have coaches, but we would love for those traditional department heads to be more peer coaches for the people that they work with. So then that's work that I've been doing with those kinds of schools as well. The ones that are wanting to develop those positions into more of a peer coaching role. So it's all about skills and processes and systems. Yeah. I'm finding Tom is a lot of schools will I'll be like in a discovery call with a school about different possibilities for consulting work and they'll say yes we want to get to that middle level leadership we want to get to the coaching but first can you just help us with some good curriculum work right. <laughs> you know I am doing a lot of curriculum development curriculum revision curriculum audits I'm doing a lot of that as well yeah, yeah, you are uh, well suited. As I said to you before, your skill set and your dispositional defaults are well suited for the role. Uh, congratulations uh, on the new venture. Um, really excited to see where you go with this. Um, listeners, you can connect with Christine on Twitter. The handle is at Christine uh, underscore Tess. And uh, Christine is also on LinkedIn. So I'll have links in the show notes for that. The website, of course, is uh, collabconsulting.org. We'll also have a link in the notes for that as well. So, uh, Christine, um, again, congratulations. Uh, Great to see you again. Uh, Great to catch up. And uh, thanks for taking the time to be here today. Appreciate it. Thank you. This was really fun. Let's do it again. Absolutely. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcasts. Now let's get back to the episode. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to talk a little bit about how we might mitigate implicit bias in assessment. Specifically, this week, 
I want to talk about how we might approach assessment through a more culturally responsive and expansive lens. Now, a few weeks ago, I was asked to write an article for the March-April 2023 issue of Principal, the bi-monthly magazine of the National Association of Elementary School Principals. So I thought what I might do here is share a few of the highlights of that article that I wrote and just give you a sense of, of the direction I went to. That article will come out in March and April, but I thought I'd give you a little bit of a snippet here to talk about sort of culturally responsive assessment and the way that I sort of conceptualize it. I'm not saying I have all the answers. What I am saying is this how is is how I'm sort of continuing to conceptualize it. So I'm going to focus on the use of cultural archetypes to create a more culturally responsive or expansive approach to assessment. Now, if left unchecked, Implicit bias in assessment can have a devastating impact on both individual students, but also a school's culture. Individual students can let, be left feeling less than their peers unnecessarily, and the school culture itself can inadvertently otherize students who don't demonstrate their learning in alignment with a very narrow view of what success looks like. We all have bias. We know that. Some of our bias, biases are intentional and inconsequential, right? We have a favorite sports team. We have a favorite restaurant. We have a favorite musician. We all have bias. However, some of our biases are implicit. And what the research has shown on implicit bias, and implicit bias essentially is when people act on the basis of prejudice or stereotypes without actually intending to do so. So it's implicit, right? We don't, we don't even, re, it's not a conscious decision. Um, sometimes this, so this whole point about implicit bias will require us to purposefully interrogate our practices to surface any possibilities that could negatively impact certain cohorts of students, right? So implicit bias, we have to be purposeful about to try to surface it because it's inside of us and we don't really know that it's happening. Now, most obviously, when it comes to implicit bias, most obviously black, brown, and indigenous learners are uh, disproportionately affected a lot of times by implicit bias. But there is also the implicit bias that negatively impacts any learner whose strengths do not align with what is traditionally thought to be valid evidence of learning. Now, in our modern assessment paradigm, our modern learning paradigm, our current standards uh, are quite sophisticated. And professional judgments of sophisticated standards are susceptible to bias for sure. Our current curricular standards, as I just mentioned, require assessment decisions that reach far beyond counting right versus wrong. They require teachers to use their professional judgment to infer quality. Where there is judgment, there is a vulnerability to bias unless a teacher or a school is intentional about proactively addressing it. Now, one way to mitigate, I'm not saying this is the only way, but one way to mitigate the implicit bias that encompasses assessment is, is through assessment format choices is, is to use cultural archetypes to create some balance. Now, of course, I picked this up from Zaretta Hammond. Um, in her 2015 book, Culturally Responsive Teaching in the Brain. And you might recall, Zaretta was on the podcast last June. Now, she recommends using cultural archetypes to create an inclusive environment without feeling overwhelmed by the daunting task of being responsive to all of the idiosyncrasies of every culture in the school. So the cultural archetypes can be found along two continuums, if you will. First, there are cultures that emphasize the importance of the individual, right? So the individual achievements are prioritized. And then there are those more emphatic about the collective, right? Where the collective achievement and the relationships that build in that collective are prioritized. So on the one hand, you've got cultures that emphasize the individual. On the other hand, you've got cultures that emphasize the collective and a continuum of that along the way. 
Now, you also have a separate continuum, cultures that tend to honor the written tradition while others honor the oral tradition. So by intentionally putting these four combinations together when deciding on assessment formats and approaches to assessment, et cetera, and different experiences we create for our students, I think we can be a little bit more culturally responsive and expansive in our approach to assessment, right? Now, I, I recognize that, that this notion of cultural culture, being culturally responsive can get oversimplified. Um, when conceptualized within a singular framework. And I'm not trying to do that here. I'm not trying to oversimplify it and put cultures into boxes or quadrants or things like that or, or anything like, you know, along that line. What I'm, what I'm trying to say is that I think if we, we look at those four combinations, um, we can easily start to expand our approach to assessment. Because when you look at those four combinations, it's really easy to see how skewed the traditional assessment paradigm has been. The, the traditional paradigm and assessment in schools has almost exclusively been about the individual and about the written tradition. So in essence, we've ignored or maybe marginalized three quarters of the possibilities. Now, the Eurocentric roots of that traditional approach in assessment run in sharp contrast to the cultural diversity that exists in schools today. So I just wanted to give that little disclaimer there to say I'm, I'm not trying to oversimplify this because I know it's incredibly complex and nuanced, but I think this is a place we can start by thinking about cultural archetypes and how this might play out in school. So let's put these four combinations together. Obviously, the most traditional format is the individual emphasis on the individual and the written tradition. This is the most traditional approach to assessment. However, a responsive approach to assessment could still be achieved if we thought about atypical writing styles, you know, whether it's writing a script or a storyboard, instead of always defaulting to the five paragraph essay, maybe we expand sort of the written tradition in the sense of, of giving some atypical formats to allow the students to capitalize on their background knowledge, their talents, or their interests, right? So they could write a script, storyboard, something that is, a written, is in written format, but it's more atypical than what we would see in schools. Now, on the other side of the one continuum, we have the emphasis on the individual, but the oral tradition, right? So this is e the easiest approach uh, to expand uh, is on you know, offering the oral tradition because most curricular standards do not demand that the student demonstrate their learning in writing. You know, and we have speaking and listening standards as well. So teachers could allow for more oral responses when students can use, for example, paralanguage and nonverbal cues to enhance their messages. This evidence can be directly gathered through conversations with students, or it can be indirectly gathered as teachers observe students in conversations, or it could be done through presentations or things like that. So most of our standards do not dictate the format of the assessment. Yeah, writing standards do, for sure. But many of our standards can be assessed in the oral tradition. Now, I'm not trying to create a binary choice here of do this or do that. Expansion means we do some writing, but we are also offer some oral opportunities, recognizing that it's more labor intensive to, to listen to students unless they've recorded themselves. You have to be simultaneously engaged, and I get that. But I think if we can start to offer oral responses, we can look at the written response, we can look at the oral response, and we can get a greater breadth of evidence that allows us to know truly where a student is with the learning. So there's the individual and the written tradition. There's the emphasis on the individual and the oral tradition. Okay, so let's go to the collective now. There are, of course, cultures that emphasize the collective. So let's look at the collective and the written tradition. 
this, in essence, would be a co-authoring opportunity, right, if you will. Teachers, I think, would be wise to incorporate protocols to help guide this process in a way that allows students to blend their voices into one voice. So, for example, students in the collective could each write a portion of a response and then blend their voices by proofreading and coming to con some consensus on their answers. This is often how uh, myself, Cassandra, and Nicole will write. We'll write separate sections, and yet it's through the editing process that we blend our voices because we read each other's sections and we begin to add our you know, phrases or revisions to those sections, and we start to blend our voice together. So even though there's three names on the book, our goal is to speak with one voice. And I think we could start to bring that into our classrooms and have kids contribute to the collective, right? Um, again, adding atypical writing styles here would also be advantageous. So how can we honor the written tradition, but do it through a collective where it's our writing, not our individual writing, uh, and a chance for us to sort of build rapport, build consensus, and, and, and put that forward as evidence of learning. Now, again, the fourth combination is the collective and the oral. Um, again, this actually is another traditional approach to assessment in many ways, because you think about the group presentation. So it's interesting that when we look at the individual, it tends to be the written tradition. When we look at the collective, we tend to lean toward the oral tradition. So again, this is you know group presentations and things like that. Now the challenge here will be to have students again present as a collective rather than being seen as a collective a collection of individuals. You know, I talked about this a few weeks ago on how I was rethinking, you know, group scores or group presentation and how that could again be be that idea of being culturally expansive. So we want to make sure that they're seen as a collective. They're not seen as group, uh, as individuals, if you will. So like with the written tradition, an atypical presentation style might actually help in this situation, whether it's through music or something theatrical, um, try to bring some expansiveness to those demonstrations that push the limits far beyond that typical sort of PowerPoint presentation or, or whatever students are might doing, might be doing. So again, uh, when we think about the individual and the written tradition, the individual and the oral tradition, the collective and the written tradition, the collective and the oral tradition, I think by, again, not trying to box in, not trying to limit, not trying to oversimplify, but by looking at assessment through the lens of those four quadrants, I think you will, in it, you know, I, I shouldn't say inadvertently, you will in, undoubtedly create a more culturally expansive view of assessment. It's not about declaring that, it's just about doing that because it is authentic evidence of learning that really is more inclusive and what kids are used to in, again, the diversity of, of homes and diversity of cultures that exist in your school. So by purposefully looking to diversify the approach to assessment, teachers are, again, undoubtedly going to be more culturally responsive because the most important thing I think to remember when approaching this is fit, not force, right? It's not about forcing all four combinations, but being open to the possibility when they kind of authentically emerge. So look for it where it feels right, where it feels natural, just add that into your repertoire. So my suggestion is to examine your approach to assessment and, and maybe begin by asking yourself this simple question. Do my assessments or does my approach to assessment tend to disproportionately emphasize one cultural archetype? It's not that students can't thrive under an archetype not aligned with their culture, 
But it seems to me that this is how we're going to create a more inclusive environment where all learners, including those, including those again from a white Eurocentric background, but those from other cultures as well, it, it's, it's going to create an expansive environment where students, all students, are going to be able to stretch themselves outside of their comfort zones, but also feel that sense of inclusion. So to me, students can thrive in assessment experiences that's, that sit outside what you know is aligned with their culture. But I think if we are attentive to all four of those combinations, we will undoubtedly create a more inclusive assessment experience for all of our learners. Okay, that's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. Also, please email the pod, tomshimmerpod at gmail.com if you have questions for Assessment Corner or if you have any suggestions or feedback for me about the podcast. Next week, my guest will be Jan Shapui. Jan is on my assessment, Mount Rushmore. Uh, she has been an assessment mentor, someone who has inspired me in the very early days, back when I began my assessment journey. The very first assessment training I ever went to was with Jan in Portland, Oregon at the Assessment Training Institute. So Jan, along with Rick Stiggins, had a massive influence on my career and my thinking around assessments. So I'm really excited to reconnect with Jan, have her on the podcast. Uh, it's just a brilliant mind when it comes to assessment and for sure one of the most important influences on my career. So that'll be next week. Uh, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, of course, but rating and review on any plot platform will be most appreciated and help grow the podcast reach. And if you like what you hear, of course, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends, your colleagues, or on social media. I would really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone.